For this reason, we must understand faith to be a gift from God. See, because men can't conjure up faith. We can't manufacture holiness. Welcome to That They Might Know. I'm your host, Joe Durso, and I'll be sharing from the second chapter of Romans in just a moment. And in that, we will be looking at the condition of man. You ever wonder why it's difficult sometimes to read the Bible and know what's going on? Well, if you've ever gone to a different culture and you speak to people within that culture, and differences arise, different ways of thinking. Well, God doesn't always think the way sinful men think, as he never thinks the way sinful men think. And we don't think the way God does. But uh, the scripture is said from God's point of view. And if you care about God, if you want to know God, if you want to understand the way he thinks, then buckle up, pray a little bit, pray that you might understand what God is trying to say by the Apostle Paul as he goes through the beginning right now in the book of Romans. We're in chapter 2. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you as the one who is the writer of the Bible, the author, the one who inspired men to put your words down on your pages, the pages of your book. We ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to now understand what you have said by what you have written. We ask that you would open the message of the gospel of the revelation of book of Romans to our hearts and our minds in this hour, in this day. We ask these things for your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we look into episode three, which I'm calling the the Roman revelation, we're looking at, at after Paul introduces himself and the gospel of Jesus Christ through the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies in the opening lines, the opening words of the first chapter, he then goes on and he declares his purpose for writing the letter. And that's in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek or the Gentile. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous one will live by faith. The gospel isn't just uh, a word that means good news. It is the embodiment of the message that God has given to men for their salvation. This is a really, really important point. So I want to zero in on this verse to begin with in this lesson once again. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith to faith, what is this emphasis on this word faith and why is faith so important in this message that Paul is declaring through the work of the Holy Spirit in his heart? I want to look at some passages. One is in Habakkuk. 
Habakkuk is one of those minor prophet books after the major ones, Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, Daniel. After those big, longer books, not more important books, the smaller books, you have Habakkuk. And in the second chapter, in the fourth verse of Habakkuk, he writes this, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. So Habakkuk there is contrasting pride with living faith. As for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. His soul is not right. It's not in a good place, according to Habakkuk's message, whereas the righteous live by faith, assuming there that faith is putting the soul in the right place. In the New Testament, in the book of Galatians, chapter 3 and verses 10 and 11, Paul contrasts living by the law with living by faith. And I quote, For all who are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to do them. Now, that no one is justified by the law before God, it is evident. For, quote, he's quoting from the Old Testament, The righteous one will live by faith. Many times this is spoken and we're going to look at a few of them here in the Old Testament, the New Testament, that the righteous one will live by faith, not by the law. Now, in verses 12 and through 14, he elaborates further in this third chapter of Galatians. However, he says, he contrasts the, the curse of the law with the promise of the Spirit through faith. Paul contrasts the curse of the law. First he states the contrast between the law and faith. Then he contrasts, contrasts the curse of the law with the promise of the Spirit through faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, the person who performs them will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Now there's the point. We're not going to live by something by which Jesus was cursed to accomplish our redemption. He became a curse on our part. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So Jesus was hung on a cross, which is a piece of wood. It comes from a tree. He's hung on a tree. In order that in Christ, he goes on to say in verse 14, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So that is living under the curse of the law, for everyone who tries to keep it, because it's impossible, because we're sinners, and sinners are obstinately against keeping God's commands, until God does something to them. And what we're seeing here in these verses that refer to living by the faith is that a, a transformation of the soul and the heart of man takes place so that men who live by faith live out the law imperfectly, but they live out the law from a heart that's been changed. So that's why he says, 
Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, that's a man of faith, very first, uh, as written in the scriptures concerning those who will live by the faith of Abraham, and I'm not going to take the time to go into chapters 15 and 16 to show how he was made righteous by faith, but that's the point being made, would come to the Gentiles, Gentiles so that we would receive, and there was a promise given of the Spirit through faith. We receive the Spirit, and the Spirit transforms the heart, transforms our soul, our mind, the whole being, every part of us, although not entirely, because we're left still imperfect. Now, later on in Romans 5.17, Paul equates righteous living with faith. Even more, he goes on and he says, quote, For if by the offense of the one, that's Adam, death reigned through the one, Adam, much more, and that is to all mankind, because all became sinners, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So living through Christ, being identified in him, being intimate with him, becoming to know him, as he prayed in in his high priestly prayer, John 17, verse 3, this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So in that knowledge, And that knowledge is a knowledge of God's love being poured on a person so that person receives him by faith and the relationship is now made whole again. Sinners that are desperately hate God and are separated from God are brought near to God and the two becoming one, as Jesus identified with us, we now identify with Jesus, we become one one in the sense of understanding one another, caring, loving one another, imperfect as we are, perfect as he is, we're being brought together in a living relationship so that by faith we begin fulfilling the law. That's what's being said here, Romans 5.17. Because it says, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign. They're in control. They're sitting in the seat where they make the decisions, and those decisions are in life through the one Jesus Christ. They're reigning. We reign. We're we're like kings on a throne saying, you do this, you do that, to our, our, our eyes and our ears and our mouth and our thoughts. We take control that the sinner does not have. In Philippians 1.27, Paul admonished his hearers to be one, one, to be one for the faith. This is what he he says exactly. So he's admonishing his hearers to be one in the faith. Only, quote, he says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Let me read that again. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. What's the manner worthy? Here he tells us. So that I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit. Not divided into a thousand different pieces and churches. No. With one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. The evidence of gospel salvation is not a creed. 
It's not a group of people who have their mind wrapped around a message and the message and the teaching become what's important. No, no, it is life in a person. The gospel, as the Bible declares, the person of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Intimacy with him is knowing him in the truth. So that all who walk in him must be of one mind because it is not divided and neither is he confused. God is not divided and God is not confused. The church should not be divided or confused if they are in Christ. Therefore, we become one in mind and heart. And so the message here is that if we are to be those who conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, we're united. So far as we're not united, we're not walking in a manner worthy. Those who live by faith walk in the Spirit, and those who walk in the Spirit are of one mind. So that all depends on how much we're walking in the faith. Now, the faith, when it refers to the faith, or the Bible uses the definite article, the, before the word faith, it is referring to the body of truth, which is the word of God. The body of truth. But again, it's not a creed, as if that's somehow what saves us. The word of God is more than a teaching, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, to the piercing asunder of soul and spirit, even to the joint marrow of the bone, and is a discerner of both the thoughts and intentions or motives of the heart. It's how deep it goes. It's living. It's not something that a person gets in their mind, they take a test, they write it, the words down on the paper, and even if the words haven't changed them one bit, you know, that's, that's the teaching, that's what matters. No, that's not what this is saying. The gospel is not saying that. The gospel is saying for a person to be saved, it transforms the person because they are united by that gospel message with the person of God in Jesus Christ. Then the writer in Hebrews 10, 38, and 39 contrasts shrinking back to preserving by faith. Quote, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. That is the real people. The people who are not just in head only, not just their emotions being stirred maybe when they sing a song, but people who are actually changed They've been transformed by the message of the gospel. Those who shrink back to destruction, apalia in the Greek, causing someone to be completely severed, cut off entirely from what could or should have been. Apalia does not imply annihilation, but instead loss of well-being. Therefore, it refers to suffering in that place of eternal Now that brings up a question which is really hard to deal with, and any person who has a heart of any kind or soul finds it difficult to think through this, because we're not God, we're we're not the infinite, we were people. And so it's all right to struggle with these concepts, 
just so long as they are accepted as coming from God and, tr- and true. So the, co- the question then would be, why, why eternal torment? I can't answer that in this short, in this brief monologue that I'm giving right now. But what I can do is I can give uh, a very brief answer, which is because men will never repent on their own initiative. For this reason, we must understand faith to be a gift from God. See, because men can't conjure up faith. We can't manufacture holiness. We can't be what God wants us to be on our own. The flesh is fallen. It's sinful. It's, it's, it hates God. It's separated from God. God is, the li- is life. In him is life. And apart from him, there is no life. He's the creator, the creator of life he, because he is life. So apart from him, and particularly in a sinful condition, men cannot repent. They can't say they're sorry to the saving of their soul. And that goes on for eternity. And so God reluctantly punishes people because of the condition that they are in. Some he saves. Certainly can't explain all of that, and I don't can't incapable of explaining it completely. Anyone, no man is. Uh, But just get that idea because we're talking about a saving faith that is a gift from God. It's a gift from God. Now, in the first three chapters, we're told that man is guilty for three reasons. In chapter one, man is guilty because of his ability to reason. We're all able to reason. We were able to understand that it's wet outside, so it rained. So we see cause and effect, and we understand things by reason. And with that reason, we understand there's an eternal God who created everything. In chapter 2, humanity is guilty because of our God-given conscience. We know right from wrong. Conscience can be corrupted, and everything has been corrupted under sin to one degree or another. But regardless, we have a conscience, and it's constantly working, and God works through that conscience to teach us right from wrong. And so if we never come to Christ, we're guilty by by, uh, because of reason, and we're guilty because of that conscience. Now, thirdly, humanity is guilty in chapter 2, beginning in 2 and going on into 3, is guilty for having received the law of God. So let us look a little bit from beginning in verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and distinguish the things that matter, being instructed from the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to people who are blind, a light to those in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, possessing in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. Now he's put down numerous phrases here to give kind of color to the idea of what it means to be Jewish, which we know Jewish is the person who, through Moses, received the law from God. And so he's, re- he's referring here to the, the law of Moses, to the Jewish people who were separated by God for this purpose of carrying out sal- the salvation plan. From calling out a people through whom the Messiah would come, giving the, the prophets and the promises and the covenants the law of God so that men might understand what God demands and at the same time bring the means of salvation. 
So with the law is where the focus is in this portion of Romans. He's talking to people who instruct from the law. Their confidence is uh, being teachers and a guide to the blind. Their confidence is being a correct one who corrects the foolish, who teaches immature people. Like they don't, they're not really mature in their responsibility in in the world and to God. Well, they they are the ones who possess the law as it and is, as it is an embodiment of knowledge and truth. To them, he says, "You therefore who teach someone else, do you not teach yourself?" Now he's being ironical, he's being uh, a touch of sarcasm here as he speaks for God. Uh, uh, do you step up and do you do the things that you're talking about? It basically is what he's saying. You who teach that someone is not to see steal, do you steal? See, this is where he's going. You who say that one is not to commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who loathe idols, do you rob temples? So, the question is, is it just in your head? Okay, so you're Jewish. You got the law of Moses. You think you're somebody because you understand right from wrong. Well, now that you have the law, do you do, you, do, you do it? This is similar to what he talked about in conscience. We went into it a little bit the last time. Because conscience speaks to us right to the heart. It's not something written down in stone like the law which really plainly, in written forms, this is what the demands of the law are. It's something more subtle than that. It's in the mind. It's in the heart. It's something you can't really put words to, maybe, but you can because you just feel it's wrong. But do you do it? You know it, but do you do it? So you're responsible because you feel it, or you're responsible because you read it. You're just more and more responsible. You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? So he's asking, all right, so you got the law, you've become more responsible, you've become a teacher, okay, that's great. Now, where do you stand as far as salvation goes? Is it just boasting? Is it empty? Or is it something that has some meat to it? Is it real? And then he concludes that statement by saying, for... The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. It's written that way. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, speaking to the Jew. Now, in today's context, you know, the Jews were set aside 2,000 years ago so that the church, which is the church, which is the, the assembly of Gentiles, from all nations and all races, saying that all people are sinners. And because all people are sinners, all people need salvation. Now in all of this, God is sovereign, because if he wants to go to a particular people like the Jew and save them, he can, because he's not responsible to save anyone. He's not under any obligation to do so. He could damn the whole entire race. The whole human race is guilty, we're guilty under conscience. We're guilty under reason. In, in this case, now we become guilty under law, and he can condemn anyone. Now, that might be a hard pill to swallow. But why? Why? I mean, the world right now has got to be 6,000 years old. And in that 6,000 years, the world has been 
has mankind has filled the world with blood. I mean, it's the kings go out to war and the nations war and why do they rage? And man is forever trying to take control of everything for, for what reason? We all live on an average of 70 years and then we're gone. And then it goes into new hands and new hands and man is ever fighting over the ground, over the things that are going to disappear in a very short while. I mean, man's like the grass, the Bible says. He just he rises up and he fades away in a day and he's gone. And they're fighting and bloodshed and arguing. And it all amounts to sin. I mean, gossip and on and on it goes. Jealousy and covetousness. And you have the Ten Commandments. I mean, really, really, when you stop and think about it. I mean, are we really having fun? No. I'm not, I'm not trying to be funny right now. I'm, I'm really not. It, it's just, it's so horrible. It's so horrible that men destroy one another for a piece of ground. For anything. What does it matter? Why, why the violence? Why, why the insanity? Why the rat race? Whatever we want to call it. You know, why is it life the way it is on planet Earth? If it isn't for sin and separation from the holy God. We want to blame God. How could there be a God, you know, and the life is the way it is? If this is such a perfect God. Never want to stop and look at ourselves. Don't want to put any, take any responsibility for what we do. So the fact that I would say something, which is very biblical, which is God has the right to condemn the whole world. He already has. And he does in this section. And as we go on to chapter 3, we see that. All the world is guilty before God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Statement after statement after statement all through the New Testament. Doesn't mean that God isn't loving because God poured out his life, his son, he became a man, all of that to justify some at a horrible cost to himself to show forth how much he does love men. Multitudes, multitudes of men. But he didn't have to save anyone. Now, the person who does not believe he had to save someone doesn't recognize the depth and the horror and the guilt of sin and of humanity. And that there is no obligation on God because he made man perfect in that day. And when man sinned, he took matters in his own hands and he became guilty. That's why people go to hell. If any one person goes to hell, it shows that man is responsible. How many go to hell shows that all men are guilty. Now, having said that, that all men are guilty before God, that leaves us to this place of why some are not. And that's where this gospel comes in to be what Paul is trying to make clear, that God is righteous in all that he does. Those he sends to eternal punishment, and those he saves for eternal bliss and to enjoy him forever. And the difference is faith. Faith that saves and transforms because it takes God at his word that the gospel is true. And that such a person is transformed as in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, this person is a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, this person is a new creation. 
Old things passed away, behold, new things have come. There it is. What passed away? That person who is lost, regardless of the fact that they're able to reason, that they have a conscience, that they sit under the law, and they just see it clear as day what the commandments are. And then John, Peter, uh, yeah, Jesus comes in the New Testament and he clarifies the law, that the law is not just these outward ordinances of thou shalt not commit adultery, but not lusting after a woman is sin. It starts right there in the mind and in the heart. Getting angry at someone, some family member that did something to tick you off. That's like the sin of murder to God. Now our standards are not like those standards, but God's standards are that. According to Jesus, and he's God, so he knows what he's talking about. And so they all go that way, whether it's jealousy or gossip or whatever it might be, all divisions and strife and animosity and anger, all of it. It's all horrendous to God, and it deserves punishment. And man is so determined to be in control of his own life, the captain of his own vessel, that he won't turn from it. He won't even acknowledge that he's wrong. So the first and clear evidence that a person is a Christian is they acknowledge that they've sinned. I have sinned is the cry of the, of the believer. That's the element of faith that first shows up that man is acknowledges that he is sinful before Almighty God. Now with that in place, he goes on in chapter 3, and we'll take that up in the next message, where God, uh, Peter goes on, Peter, Paul goes on to explain the extent in humanity of how many are guilty for these reasons. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time in your word. I thank you for the Apostle Paul. I thank you for the life that he lived and the abuse that he took and the beatings and the shipwreck and the rejection and among Jews and Gentiles and I mean he was just pushed out of measure for the gospel and for Jesus Christ he understood this truth he understood truth he understood as a religious leader as a Pharisee that he was nothing before God even with all that knowledge even with all the scriptures he counted all of that as horse manure in the Greek to gain Christ. He understood the true message as one who is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the gospel. He's the message. He's the one, he is the eternal life. I ask, Lord, for those hearing this, those who may be anywhere in the world, thank you for the world wide web. We ask that as this message goes out, it would touch even one person be a wonderful thing for one person to hear this message and understand that they can bow their head. They can acknowledge they're a sinner. They can put their faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. They can read the Bible. And with that faith that you give, it transforms the heart. It gives new direction, purpose. It gives reason for living that is outside of self, but actually directed to the person who gave it, which is Almighty God the person of Jesus Christ. We ask, Lord, that you would use it in that way. 
And for those who are Christians, help them to understand the gospel more fully and more completely. Allow them, Lord, persuade them to read Romans and to, to gain from these chapters you know, the, the strength needed to persevere in an, in an unkind and a cruel world. We ask these things, Lord, not just for ourselves only, but for your honor and your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.